0: This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated, and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on carotid artery stenosis. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Stroke is the fourth leading cause of death in the UK, and the fifth leading cause in the US. There are more than 100,000 strokes in the UK every year. And about 10 to 15% of all ischemic strokes are associated with carotid artery stenosis. So it's important that we get the diagnosis and management of this condition right. To give us more details about this problem and what we can do about it, we have on the line Brajesh Lal, Professor of Vascular Surgery at university of maryland school of medicine and professor of neurology at the mayo clinic and importantly Prajesh is one of the contributors to our bmj best practice topic on this condition so Brajesh, you're welcome let's start off by asking what exactly is carotid artery stenosis
1: thank you karen and a big hello uh to um, all of the audience um carotid disease is an atherosclerotic process, and it's part of uh, the systemic process of atherosclerosis. Um, When atherosclerotic plaques develop in the carotid artery, they tend to occur at the bifurcation, where the carotid, after coming off of the aorta, branches in the neck um, and uh, gives off a branch, an external carotid artery to the neck, As well as an internal carotid artery that goes up into the skull. And right at that bifurcation, this plaque tends to develop and grow. Uh, That's one of the reasons why uh, there are various colloquial synonyms for this particular disease process, which technically is carotid atherosclerosis. Because this plaque is growing in the wall and progressively encroaching on the lumen, It tends to cause a narrowing in the flow channel, so it's also called carotid stenosis. And then because 90% of the problems in the carotid artery are associated with this particular condition, it is, in generic terms, also called carotid disease.
0: Okay, thank you. That's very helpful, very clear. How do you make the diagnosis? The most common way in which... Uh, This
1: particular condition is detected during a clinical examination is when you can auscultate with your stethoscope a bruit in the carotid artery. Uh, A word of caution, though, there can be many reasons why you can hear a bruit, so it is not a definitive diagnosis. Uh, The next step in, in detecting it is to perform a carotid ultrasound. Uh, This is a non invasive test, as all of you probably already know. No contrast required, no radiation required, and in the big scheme of diagnostic tests available in medicine, relatively inexpensive too. And the ultrasound can detect um, through a waveform analysis the velocity with which blood is flowing and. Increased narrowing will lead to increased velocities, and the velocities can then be translated into an assessment of how narrow the lumen is, and therefore how big the plaque is. And at the same time, B-mode imaging, also performed with the ultrasonography, can give us a view of the plaque and perhaps some of its architecture and structure.
0: Okay, thank you. And just to follow up on one point, you said that Carotid artery stenosis is one cause of brewies in the neck. What are other causes, I wonder?
1: Um, One of the most common causes is a uh, bruie that has been actually transmitted from a pathology within one of the heart valves. And therefore, aortic stenosis or aortic regurgitation or even simply uh, low hemoglobin levels leading to turbulence at the aortic valve can also lead to a transmitted murmur that can be misdiagnosed as a brewey emanating in the carotid artery. So that's why it's very important that we acknowledge the presence of a burpee, but then take the next step if there is a degree of suspicion for a carotid stenosis.
0: Okay, thank you. And what other tests might be necessary? besides uh, carotid ultrasound?
1: Once a diagnosis has been made,
0: um, then
1: one has to make a decision on what kind of treatment one is entertaining. Most commonly, the detection of a carotid stenosis will be managed by altering medications and lifestyle. Under certain circumstances, the physicians may decide that additional invasive treatment is required in the form of removing or treating that narrowing. If that is determined, then additional imaging is generally recommended. And that can take the form of a CT angiography or an MR angiography. And under extremely rare Circumstances, even an invasive uh, carotid angiography.
0: Okay, thank you. And we'll get on to management in a second, but one last question about diagnosis. I wonder are there any common pitfalls in diagnosis?
1: Absolutely. Um, The most common pitfall is when to perform the carotid ultrasound. There's a tremendous amount of controversy and variability across the world uh, regarding when to perform a sonogram. Um, As you can imagine, because this is an atherosclerotic condition, there are a lot of older individuals that if they were indiscriminately imaged with a sonogram, one would end up detecting carotid plaque. Different organizations have come up with slightly varied recommendations on who to perform the carotid sonogram on. Clearly, individuals in whom a carotid brewery is auscultated, um, a, a relatively simple sonogram is warranted. However, what about the completely asymptomatic individual? Should we be screening those individuals? Within the United States, the federal agencies have taken a fairly firm stand that they will not reimburse, do not recommend, and will not reimburse for indiscriminate screening of, let's say, older adults above the age of 45 or 50. On the other hand, uh, academic societies, both the American Heart Association as well as the Society for Vascular Surgery, uh, have taken the approach that individuals that have a high-risk for systemic atherosclerosis might be considered for screening with a sonogram. And these would be individuals that have two or more risk factors, the traditional four or five risk factors that we're all very well aware of, hypertension, diabetes, uh, being overweight, a sedentary lifestyle, being previous or current smokers. Uh, Those would Potentially, be individuals who would benefit from screening. So the controversy is not so much on what is the first diagnostic test that should be performed. Uh, the controversy is more on who should it be performed on.
0: Okay, thank you. But I'm I'm guessing that most authorities would not recommend screening. I think absolutely,
1: and and I think that societies as well as uh, Um, Most centralized healthcare facilities and agencies are consistent in their recommendation uh, against indiscriminate screening. Academic societies have indicated that there can be selective screening in high-risk populations.
0: Okay, thank you. Let's move on to management, uh, and let's start off with medical management. Um, Tell us about that, first of all.
1: Sure. I firmly believe, and this is consistent with the guidelines both in Europe as well as in Asia and in the United States, that the detection of carotid atherosclerotic disease is an indication of systemic atherosclerosis. And once that detection has been confirmed, then individuals must modify and intensify medical management. And the medical management will take the form of lipid control, smoking cessation, weight reduction, increased levels of exercise, perhaps the addition of antiplatelet therapy, and of course, careful control of Hypertension and diabetes, if it happens to exist in the patient. Once this constellation of atherosclerotic risk factors has been taken care of, then we can move into the arena of what to do with the larger plaques or those that are causing tighter and tighter
0: stenoses. And we can talk about that um, a little later. Yeah. Okay. And we'll get on to that in a second. And also, I'm guessing we'd need to control cholestro- hypercholesterolemia as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. This, so, so I guess in some, that means for most patients, aspirin plus a statin. Is that correct? That is correct. That is the bare minimum uh, that the patients should be
1: on. Um, lipid control, uh, which today oftentimes will take the form of a statin. However, if statins are ineffective or not tolerated, there are alternate uh, drugs that can be recommended, ezetimibe, as well as PCSK9 inhibitors. Uh, but those are usually reserved for patients that are intolerant to statins. Statins, by far, for lipid management, are the best approach. And then an antiplatelet agent, in most instances, will take the form of a low dose of aspirin.
0: Okay, thank you. So I'm going to ask you some questions about different scenarios uh, next. Um, so say we have a patient who is completely asymptomatic and has very mild narrowing and is on medical treatment. For most patients, is would you leave it? at that?
1: So uh, I think we have to be careful um, about defining um, the narrowing. And when when we use terms such as mild or moderate or severe, they could potentially mean different things for different physicians, different patients, and of course, different continents too. Um, Currently, Based on the level of understanding of the pathology, the most commonly used marker for disease severity still continues to be the degree of stenosis or degree of narrowing. But we do have to acknowledge that there's not a perfect relationship between the degree of narrowing and the risk for an adverse event such as a stroke. So we have to keep that fact in mind. Having said that, I will revert back to our most commonly used and most well-established means of detecting the severity of a narrowing. Within the United States and Europe, in general, a narrowing that has hit the 50% mark is considered to be established carotid stenosis. This has oftentimes been also used as an epidemiological definition of the presence of the disease. On the other hand, the presence of a 70% or greater stenosis, in other words, now the lumen is reduced to about 30% of normal, is considered to be a severe narrowing. So your question, um, when you mentioned mild stenosis, if I were to interpret to mean, the detection of any atherosclerosis um, within the carotid artery would warrant the institution of intensive medical management, which we have just gone through already.
0: Okay. Thank you. Let's move on to a patient who is uh, symptomatic, who has had a TIA, perhaps, Um but maybe once again has less than 50% narrowing, what for most patients would the recommendation be?
1: If the narrowing is less than 50% and the patient has suffered a neurological event, in this case a TIA, um, the recommendation is to seek other causes for that particular TIA. Most guidelines will recommend carotid artery revascularization, most commonly performed surgically, for patients with a 50% or greater narrowing in the presence of a TIA. The odds of a stroke being caused by a carotid stenosis that is less than 50% progressively reduces. As uh, you had mentioned in your introductory statement, about 10 to 20% of all ischemic strokes occur as a result of carotid disease. And epidemiologically, what we have found is most of those patients have a stenosis that is at least 50% or greater. There are a small proportion of patients with a less than 50% stenosis, and they happen to have suffered a stroke where the stroke may have been caused by that narrowing in the carotid artery, usually those would be associated with accompanying ulceration on the plaque or thrombus on the plaque. That's a very small percentage, though.
0: Okay, thank you. And You made a very important point there, I think, when you mentioned a TIA associated with the part of the brain supplied by the carotid artery. You said something along those lines, I think. Um, Can you tell us what type of TIAs they would be?
1: Absolutely. So when one looks at the hemodynamics of blood flow from the carotid artery into the brain, um, a majority of that blood flow is directed towards the middle cerebral artery and the anterior cerebral artery. And therefore, one can now begin to predict what kinds of physical syndromes would be associated with a TIA or stroke that is occurring as a result of a lesion in the carotid artery. Most of them lead to monotonous, consistent, and entirely repeatable motor or sensory deficits um, associated with the territory, in other words, the hemisphere of the brain that is being supplied by that carotid artery.
0: Okay, and, and can you give us examples of that? That would be uh, weakness in the arm and leg or loss of speech? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Uh,
1: and you alluded to perhaps the most common presentations, which are um, uh, paresis or plegia. In other words, weakness of the um, contralateral, the opposite arm or leg to the carotid artery uh, that uh, happens to harbor the disease, uh, as well as if this happens to be a left carotid artery lesion in most individuals, it could potentially affect speech, and the patient may present with aphasia.
0: And those are perhaps the most common
1: presentations.
0: Okay. And also, amaurosis fugax sometimes? Right. So so that is
1: a unique presentation where the atheroembolic particle, the way that these carotid plaques tend to misbehave is not by abruptly occluding the carotid artery, in other words, thrombosing it, but by breaking off little pieces. In other words, the plaque is disrupted and then little pieces of it can travel upstream into the brain. As I had mentioned, uh, almost 80% of the flow is directed towards the middle and anterior cerebral arteries, but a small percentage of the flow is also directed to the ophthalmic artery, which is indeed the first branch of the internal carotid artery in the skull. And if that particle Tend, uh, tends to go into the ophthalmic artery, it can also lead to a fairly unique condition called amaurosis fujax, which traditionally will present with a constriction of the uh, visual field, like a curtain falling across the eye um, and then disappearing if it happens to be a TIA or persisting Uh, if it happens to be in an established stroke.
0: Okay, thank you. And I guess part of the reason why why these guidelines are in place is because interventions on the carotid artery, if they are necessary, they can be risky. So say if a patient had uh, a previous TIA uh, recently and uh, had 90% stenosis, and you were considering intervention you'd still need to counsel them i guess about potential side effects or adverse effects of the intervention can you tell us about what you would tell the patient
1: absolutely Um, if we were to take the most common approach and the most um, expected approach uh, to revascularization which has the most amount of level one data, then one would be offering a carotid endarterectomy, carotid surgery, traditionally, um, to the patient. Uh, This involves making uh, anywhere from a two to three inch long incision in the neck, in the front and lateral aspect of the neck, uh, and then exposing the carotid artery, giving the patient blood thinning agents, opening up the artery after um, arresting circulation for a little while, removing the plaque, and then sewing the artery back together, perhaps with a patch. This entire process requires handling of the artery, uh, requires uh, moving the plaque, manipulating the plaque, uh, and then, um, quote unquote, cleaning up the surface of the artery from any debris. There are several complications that can occur from all of these maneuvers. The most important one is that we may end up dislodging plaque as we are handling the artery or leaving behind little pieces of debris that may then ultimately travel upstream and cause a stroke. So there is most certainly a finite risk of a periprocedural stroke from the operation. In addition to that, there are smaller risks, numerically, of having continued bleeding after the arterial repair or an infection at the site, Uh, or the patient may suffer myocardial infarction because we can never forget that this is a patient who is participating in a systemic atherosclerotic process, and therefore the coronaries are also at risk. So periprocedural stroke is the number one or the most important complication. Uh, Periprocedural myocardial infarction is another one. And then, of course, local complications of bleeding or even injury to nerves that travel alongside the carotid artery are also small uh, but known complications. All of these must be discussed in detail with the patient so they are well aware and are offering and a well-informed consent to the procedure.
0: Okay, thank you. And I know I'm asking you terribly difficult questions, but another one on, on this subject. People talk about being a candidate for intervention if you've had a recent TIA. What does recent mean in this context? Um,
1: I think that is a difficult question, and the the reason why it's difficult is because there is not a whole lot of consensus on that particular definition. There is also, in addition to that, evolving understanding of how quickly one must operate after a transient ischemic attack. Within Europe, um, there is an increasingly aggressive Um, attempt and recommendation to treat this patient as soon as possible. There is an ideal recommendation of operating on the patient within a 24-hour to 48-hour window, but most certainly within a week. Within the United States, um, the recommendation is most certainly to attempt to treat the patient within a week of this particular event. And there's there's a rationale for this. Um, When one has to balance the fact that if a patient has had a transient ischemic attack, their risk for having a second one or their risk for having a bigger stroke is higher, significantly higher than the average patient with a carotid stenosis who has never suffered a TIA. And that that sense of urgency has to be balanced with the wherewithal of the healthcare system to be able to move this patient through the diagnostic and preparatory process and get them onto the operating room table. So when guidelines are established, uh, they're trying to balance these two imperatives. There is no doubt, however, that patients with a TIA have a higher risk for developing a second TIA or a stroke, and therefore must be treated at the very least on an urgent basis, if not on an emergency basis.
0: Okay, thank you. And and one last question about intervention. You mentioned nerves can be, certain nerves can be close to the carotid artery. I wonder, could you tell me what nerves they are?
1: Absolutely. So there are there are two sets of nerves. The first are those that, as I alluded to, travel around or behind or close to the carotid artery. And then there are a set of cutaneous nerves that may also suffer injury. So we'll talk about the ones that that travel close to the carotid artery. They start with the vagus nerve uh, that is in intimate relation to the common carotid artery. And then further up north, close to the base of the skull are the hypoglossal nerve and the trigeminal nerve. So if there is an injury to the vagus nerve, one of the more common manifestations is difficulty in breathing. Sometimes if a branch of the vagus nerve is injured, there may be hoarseness uh, or weakness of the voice. Uh, The hypoglossal nerve, if it happens to be injured, can lead to tongue deviation and inability to move the tongue effectively. And then the trigeminal nerve, which could lead to uh, swallowing difficulty. These are three common nerves that can be injured during the process of dissecting out um, the uh, carotid arteries. When you make your incision and when you are retracting the tissues in order to be able to get to where you need to get to, you may also injure... uh, cutaneous branches, which are primarily sensory in nature, uh, but also uh, motor in some circumstances. The two most common ones are the posterior auricular nerve, which supplies uh, the superior aspect of the incision right at the base of the skull, including the earlobe, and then the marginal mandibular nerve, which travels along the angle of the mandible and oftentimes can get compressed Uh, when a retractor is placed inadvertently against the mandible. Those can be avoided by making minor modifications to surgical technique. And of course, the more important nerves traveling along the internal carotid artery must be carefully preserved and careful dissection and attention to technique um, will more often than not lead to full preservation of those nerves.
0: Okay, thank you very much for that very, very detailed answer. That's great. Um, last question, which is a question about questions. What other questions do you get asked about this disease? Anything that we've missed?
1: Absolutely. Uh, the biggest question that is on the top of every patient's mind, every physician's mind, every federal healthcare agency's mind in every insurance company's mind today, so this is a universal question, is how do we treat the patient with a high grade, now we're talking about 70% or greater narrowing, stenosis in an asymptomatic, otherwise relatively healthy individual? Now, this was a question that was actually posed to over 5,000 physicians of various specialties. Neurologists, cardiologists, vascular surgeons, internal medicine specialists across several continents. This was a hypothetical uh, patient that was presented to them, and they were asked would they recommend surgical revascularization in this patient or only intensive medical management? And believe it or not, this question was asked back in 2008, and the results were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the results were resounding maybe. In other words, about half of all those physicians recommended revascularization, and half of them recommended intensive medical management alone. So the biggest question that is being asked currently in the field is, how do we manage a patient with asymptomatic high-grade carotid stenosis? This is currently being addressed in a multi-center randomized trial called CREST-2 in the United States with participating centers um, in the U.S. and Canada, in Israel, uh, Germany, Australia, and Spain. And there are about 150 centers, about 2,000 of the target 2,400 patients have already been enrolled in the study and hopefully we'll have results in the coming two years. So till that time, current guidelines are still consistent in their recommendations to consider revascularization in asymptomatic patients with high-grade carotid stenosis, particularly those with high-risk features on carotid ultrasonography or CAT scans as far as their plaque is concerned. However, uh, we are now facing a situation where the level one data was for this particular recommendation was generated in the mid 1990s so it's 25 years old medical management has progressed since that time our ability to perform safe operations have improved since that time and therefore there is an urgent need to develop new level one data to help us guide that answer. So to my mind, that is the most often asked question by my patients, as well as by neurologists, vascular surgeons, and internists.
0: Okay. Well, Thank you very much, Brijesh. I think we might have to have you back in a couple of years' time uh, to to, to answer that one once again. Thank you for allowing me to share my thoughts. And, And thanks everybody for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and have a look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.